0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week it's going to be the turn of the British punk band all the way from North London. It was Eater, because I really recently spoke to their lead singer-songwriter, Andy Blade, or Ashra Radwan as he was born, uh, very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all the other groovy stuff. Anyway, look, this is the interview. It does go on and on. But it's quality chat and some amazing stories, so make notes. I will test you at the end. Right, so after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to the exciting subject that was the early musical influences. I know. How did you guess? Anyway, look, Andy, take it away.
1: The first record that I ever wanted that was bought for me, which is not quite the same as, was Puppy Love Excellent. by Donnie, that my mum bought for me. And, mm-hmm. uh, and actually she bought too, and Rockin' Robin by Michael Jackson, because she knew that I, I liked birds. <laughs> <But> the first track <laughs> I ever bought myself was by a band called Marmalade, it's called Redancer, which was okay. um, a real kind of brilliant, fucking rocky riff, great song. And, uh, and then from then, it quickly sort of snowballed into uh, proper rock stuff, and Alice Cooper, and Sparks, and Bowie, and you know T Rex, and the whole glam thing was was just kind of happening around that age for me.
0: Yes, that was um, yeah. I mean, I suppose Top of the Pops was was a huge thing, and also the Sunday the charts on a Sunday evening to hear what was. Top of the Pops one. was huge. Yeah, it it was kind I mean, of a, a moment really.
1: It was, and it, it was. Um, now it's everything saturated. If you want to see a band that you like, just go online and get it straight away. But in those days, it was just a whole week you had to wait. And sometimes the old Whistle Test was in the season as well. So there might be two programs. But I don't know, it seemed better. I think I preferred it like that because there was more mystique with the bands and, um, you know, more of a mystery to it all rather well, than. That, well, I also, out everything.
0: You know. Yeah, well, it, it definitely wasn't accessible, finding in, in information about bands. Also, with the charts, you know, records would either go up and down quite a few places and be in the charts for ages. And go, Oh, it's gone up three places. Yeah. And you, yeah. Felt somehow, you felt quite responsible. If, you know, if you wanted to go up any more, you need to go and buy the record because otherwise, you know, that would count. So psychologically, it was quite interesting. But it did mean yeah. a record would be in your life for quite a few months before it disappeared. Definitely, again. definitely so, yeah. Um, so what were your parents like? What was your family life like at that stage?
1: Um, it was a strange one, because my parents were, uh, my dad's Egyptian, and so he'd sort of come, met my mum in the early fifties, and then growing up, having tons of kids. I've got, I've got, there's eight kids in my family altogether. And so it was like a, just a constant battle all the time too. Um, you know, I'm being in the middle somewhere. I was a kind of an insignificant, one and um so it's yeah a lot of it was was good fun but there's lots of problems they got divorced and there's some nasty stuff going on and um but you know my dad was a headmaster as well so he was very wanted us all to be academic and um get good jobs and definitely don't go into the music business (laughs) (laughs) so uh luckily my parents got divorced just at the at the right time where suddenly he wasn't an influence anymore and i, I formed the band then
0: <laughs> yes so were they into music themselves i mean was it a house that used to have any kind of music yeah playing?
1: yeah there's a lot of music i mean the there was radios all around the house anyway so we were always listening to pop music on the radio and then my mum was really into um uh sort of country and western Type stuff and uh,
0: and
1: some of that was all right. I thought and Con- people like Conway Twitty <laughs> and uh, these kind of old time rock and roll people, which you know some of it was all right. But I didn't, you know, I we, but she had a record player. You see, so that was really important because we're always once we go into records, straight into her room yes. and borrow the record player for a couple of hours, and so she got to know the whole kind of oeuvre of Sparks and T Rex and Alice Cooper, and uh, I like that one. I don't (laughs) like that one. I don't know what he's singing about.
0: Yes, school, school's out was probably quite a a radical record for the older generation. Definitely, that
1: that was a big turning point for me. That was. I mean, that was brilliant seeing Alice Cooper on top of the. I was already a fan anyway, but my mum and dad happened to be in the in the living room at the time, and they saw that I was really into it. I've eyes glued to the TV, four inches away. And again, you know, what's happened to our son? And my dad was man called Alice wearing stupid makeup. And uh, yeah, that was that. And also, I hated school. Fucking hated school. In fact, I skipped school for a couple of years. But um, and so, school's out was like, you know, my anthem definitely. Yes. Uh, it's a proper anthem.
0: Yes. So when you, I mean, then you know, because you must have been quite close to what was going to happen. Because I was too young for the punk scene, by uh, it felt like a long way, really. And especially because in that time, I was I grew, grew up in a village, a working class bungalow house, um bungalow in in a village, which meant that um, access to the punk movement just never came to to that village at all, so yes, that felt quite a different, a whole different world. You read about it, or maybe saw about it on the pa- in the papers, but you were in North London at the time. Yeah, you were a few years older, so you would have picked up on the vibe, really.
1: I mean, that was lucky. I mean, we were only kind of 14, 15 at the at the start of it, and um, but if we hadn't been, you know, in London, it would have been very difficult to, have, you know, we could just hop on the tube and. Uh, do stuff you know and hassle people and uh you know and journalists <laughs> and things like that and try to get in the paper and you know and if we lived in somewhere like East Dereham, for instance <laughs> it would have been really difficult to uh you know to make it real but I mean we when we did quite a lot against the odds to make the band happen by and we had no instruments and uh none of us had any money you know the parents didn't have any money and so we the only way we were going to get instruments we discovered after six months of looking at guitar catalogs dreaming was in the local music shop that sold guitars and basses and exactly what we needed yes. and so we we arranged this little robbery on it and uh me and my brother and the guitarist brian or the soon-to-be guitarist brian then just thief and we raided it at closing time. He always used to go in the back of the shop, put his coat away
0: before locking up the manager. Brilliant, you you, you cased the joint?
1: We cased it out, yeah, it was a proper, you know, and it was dark because it was winter, so it was straight after school, and mm-hmm. we were still in our school uniforms and everything, and uh, <laughs> and we just rushed in, grabbed the guitars we wanted, and legged it on our already decided getaway path, where two of us had to jump over a wall, get the guitars, and you know, they could never chase us, and and then eventually we stashed the guitars in the back garden, someone's back garden, over a wall where we we're going to come back later and retrieve them. And as we came out of this alleyway in our school uniform, still, you know, fucking puffed out, two cop cars with, like, with sirens were going up towards the high road where the shop is. And, you know, I reckon they didn't for a second think those two schoolboys, those three schoolboys were responsible for it. Or well, I don't know, maybe someone gave a description, but either way, we got away with it. So uh if that hadn't happened. So there there you go, you know what I mean? So if we lived in East Dereham, then I think overcoming no guitars is more of a feat than travelling into London and making it. Yes.
0: Well I think I think the two the two. Um, well, that was a very desperate way to sort of get into it or start the band, actually. I was, I've never well it's the to... only way. It was the only way, otherwise it wouldn't have happened, you know. Yeah. Either. But the commitment is quite extraordinary. I've never in all these interviews come across uh, um, anybody who, who's been that committed I mean mostly people get a guitar or borrow a guitar or get you know somebody says oh there's a guitar they don't know what they're doing so they start hitting and hitting strings and then you know someone says oh Christ I better give you some guitar lessons or you know I've got an uncle who can help but um but yeah we didn't, so... even, we didn't even bother with the
1: guitar lessons either we sort of <laughs> picked it up as we went along but I'd read that Pete Townsend you know used to knit guitars they'd smash up on stage so I thought well I said just a rock and roll thing to do, isn't it? It's not really stealing, Pete no, Townsend. It? But then I later found out, years later, he lied about that. He didn't really steal the guitars from the shop.
0: So. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, know, I think he was probably just getting a bit, trying to inflate his own narrative, wasn't he? Um, yeah. <laughs> he doesn't, he looked part middle class for that. So anyway, when, once you got the guitars, which was obviously two thirds of the band, what uh, so, to- Yeah, so we
1: had the, Brian, my school friend, Brian, who helped do the robbery, and my younger brother was at Crimes guitarist. My younger brother, Social Demise, as he was called, was the uh was the drummer. And so the only thing, and of course he did all the work. My younger brother did all the work, really. We just waited outside the shop while he grabbed them and then ran. And because the drum kit was too big to steal, he still had to buy a kit to be in the band. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he managed to get an old kit for 30 quid and um and we started rehearsing but we didn't have amps we couldn't do the amps either that was <laughs> that was not feasible and so we plugged into record players and old tape recorders and things and and it was a fucking dreadful racket for a long time and uh in my bedroom rehearsing and then we didn't have a bass player we kept auditioning kids at school that we thought looked right but they were just fucking useless when it came to even something simple yes and um and so we put eventually we put an ad in the Melody Maker and found a bass player that way and then in the meanwhile my brother got kicked out of the band anyway because he wouldn't cut his hair and we were introduced to Degenerate our little drummer who um, was Rat Scabies' protégé from the Dan drummer so he was a great you know he's a bit younger than us even so he was like really young getting to like do a dubious age you know he was like 13 or something like that but because we were we were 15 by then. It was like, well, I suppose 13's all right. <laughs> but he was great, as it turned out. Without him, you know, you know, he was like an integral part of the jigsaw because he bought a whole different side to it all and made us play faster and, and stuff like that. And so yes. it, it came into place really good. Probably within the space of stealing the guitars and doing our first gig with the Buzzcocks, it was about six... Uh, maybe less less than six months, you know, right. four
0: months. But well, that's that's kind of a good part of the journey. But then you had to write, or at least do... do you I know, would play. already been
1: doing that. I've been, I've been writing all these lyrics and stuff and made up tunes in my head, you know, that I needed to learn how to guitar, to play the guitar so I could strum them. <laughs> and so that was quite easy, you know. So I, we already had, you know, a set and several encores written before we had our first <laughs> rehearsal, you know.
0: That's great, that's that's very that's impressive. I've got a bit of an echo there actually. Uh, yeah, so that's, um. yeah, I mean obviously you were very determined and, and sort of committed. Well it, we
1: were, it was, you know, it was probably the most kind of go for it thing in, you know, in my life definitely but probably the others as well that we could exam purely because we were so naive and and it wasn't so much determined as stupid, you know, and willing to, willing to uh, and making up lies, you know, like to to have a goal to reach, we'd make a lie that we already had the guitars, so we told all our friends at school, uh, and then, fuck, now we've got to get the guitars, and it was always <laughs> like that, you know. We've got a record coming out, you know, but we haven't expanded record company yet, and all that kind of thing, so it was like setting impossible goals and then trying to bluff your way to get there.
0: Yes, well, I right. suppose that's kind of, I, I think years later or decades later, you have these people like Tony Robbins who do these weekend workshops of how to, you know, get your, you know, the dream life. And I suppose you're, you're projecting the future so strongly, because most people live in the past regretting stuff, but you're obviously looking at your future with such kind of a vivid, you know. It wasn't really the
1: future, you know. It was more like, you know, everything was the moment. There's no thinking about, and if we form a successful band. After forming the band, there was no kind of plan after that as to how we get from A to B or... You know whether or not we'll make any money out of it or whether we'll even get the papers, or you know, there's no thought, so it was only planning in the short term, you know. Right, right we need guitars,
0: yes. Just well, up, I suppose when you're in the that age group between the 13 and 15, you know, every day is kind of an epic, and every you know, you don't plan almost well the weekend but beyond the weekend, you know, yeah, just, exactly, You, know, exactly. you, don't, well, have exactly a, you don't have your yearly calendar worked out what you're going to be doing. So then, I mean, were you picking up on what the scene was, kind of musically, with people like Richard Strange and the Doctors of Madness? And yeah,
1: well, we were already big, big Doctors of Madness fans. I mean, well before punk happened, I was going to see the Doctors of Madness. Me and Brian were going to see the band, and they, you know, they were they were definitely one of our, uh, you know, heroes at the time. But they, you know, the punk scene, we kind of very, very quickly, again, sort of abnormally quickly after our first gig got absorbed into that, the whole inner circle of the punk movement because we got picked up by Dave Goodman, who was um, the Sex Pistols sound man and producer. And he wanted to sign us to a label that he was forming, that he told us at the time he was forming with Johnny Rotten and it was going to be called Rotten Records and we would be the first band on it. But that turned out to be a lie, but Johnny Rotten knew nothing about the label <laughs> at all. I think Dave was playing our own game, he was you know, a good bit older than us and should have known better. But um as far as making things up. <laughs> <laughs> but so we very quickly met all the kind of movers and shakers in that in the scene, you know, the pistols and the clash and the, you know, I mean, Richard Strange, he wasn't really in the scene, he was kind of hovering around on the edges. But um but yeah, it it was
0: It was interesting because I done an interview with Richard and he's such an engaging and amusing. But he said they were two years too early for punk. He said by yeah. the time punk came along they'd slightly uh, had their day and they were probably 25 and the two odds were the same well they were
1: he was already pushing on a bit even in the doctors but, <laughs> but, and, and age was a big thing you know and uh anybody over 25 you know we can forget it
0: yeah,
1: and and because they had a name see the whole thing about punk was that it was new you know so anybody that used to be in a band was kind of frowned upon a bit anyway and, and any bands jumping on the bandwagon and there were loads they were always the uncool, you know, bands, yes. you knew that there'd been a pub rock band like a year ago playing at, you know, Open Anchor or whatever, and, and now they've all cut their hair short and bought spandex trousers and sleeveless t-shirts.
0: Yes, but Richard, I, Richard did say everybody who was in the audience watching them did go on to form punk bands and were very successful compared to him and the Doctors of Madness, but um, yeah, it's interesting because Joe Strummer was in the 101ers and he looked a bit of an old hippie actually. Because, yeah, yeah,
1: well, he was another one. I mean, he got away with that somehow, he got away with that, but because the class was so good. But he, yeah, I mean, I'd seen him in the 101ers before supporting a Bebop Deluxe who i got to see, and and I just thought they were a plodding rock and roll band of no interest whatsoever.
0: <laughs> well, it's interesting because I did an interview with a guy who was that in, in the London hippie scene or the alternative scene in the sixties called Barry Miles and he knew Joe Strong. He said that he he used to use the I Ching to make decisions and, and I can't remember what decision he was making, but I do remember this kind of interview I did with him and 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 sort of saying that Joe was, you know, not at all punk really. He was far from punk, but you know he obviously was able to cut his hair quickly and um Yeah. Get, get the pose just right.
1: he was always he was always pretty rock and roll Joe though, even though I mean he came from quite a uh, kind of his dad was a diplomat and you know lived in India for a bit and all that kind of thing. So he wasn't the typical kind of uh person that you expect to get into that kind of thing, but he was, you know, real rock and roll. And it's a really good bloke as well, good guy. He came to our first gig and he at our school, we were in this is another one of our scams that I've managed to pull off as we wanted we wanted to play at our school we knew they wouldn't let us do a punk gig at our school we wanted the the damned were going to do it with us and slaughter and the dogs this band from Manchester and uh and so i just went ahead and arranged it anyway (laughs) even though i knew that we wouldn't get permission and i told the um the caretaker that we wanted to rehearse their practice you know have a band practice and uh and he said okay but you know there's only got to be the band and a couple of you, and don't don't do anything wrong. And I, and he was going to be there as well. So, at end of school day, everyone went home, and then about from about seven o'clock onwards, this big queue of strange-looking people started queuing up outside this comprehensive school in this quiet sort of Finchley Road. And the caretaker was going, oh, you know, I thought it was only a couple of your friends coming, but then he realised if he stopped it, it would be a riot. And so and he was quite a good guy anyway. And so he let us uh, carry on. And Joe Strummer, you know, bless him, he he helped us afterwards, put all the, stack all the chairs back where they're supposed to be and clean up a bit and shit like that. And it was mad, totally mad. (laughs) (laughs) And I told, in the advert I put in the Melody Maker, I said, um, or the NME, whatever it was, um, the nearest tube station, Woodside Park, right? And this Woodside Park is about maybe five, six miles away from where the school was, really difficult route, like with roads everywhere. How people found it, I don't know. But uh but yeah, but well, that was a
0: success. <laughs> well that was your, your first kind of entrepreneurial bit of I don't know. It was very entrepreneurial, yeah. But that was um was slaughtering the dogs. Was that what Morrissey was into? Was he
1: Well yeah, he was connected because he um uh Billy Duffy actually is the connection because um he used to be in a band called Ed Banger in the Nosebleeds with, oh, with yeah. Mick Rossi or something like that. And and it, Morrissey auditioned or sang with them for a little while with Ed Banger in the, when they need, needed a new singer here. I think he stood in for a couple of rehearsals or a gig or whatever. And then, um, and that was through Billy Duffy who was in the band. So, yeah, but Slaughter and the Dogs came after, I think. You know, from the remnants of or one of them was in it or something like that.
0: Oh my god, they came down from Manchester. That was very impressive actually.
1: Well, they were very you know, they were a little bit older they were still really young. They were like seventeen. But you know, to us that's another two years older and so even they then to us they were sussed, you know. But they yeah, they all came down in the van, got paid about a fiver or something and drove all the way back up to Withenshore Wytham- <laughs> again.
0: For the legendary gig. But then in seventy six you played at the Roxy, didn't you?
1: In 77, we played, uh, we started playing at The Rock, so we played there a few times.
0: Yes. So was this, at this period of your, your, your career, was, I mean, this is like the, the kind of musical zeitgeist. You had 75 with the, or 76 with the Ramones, and then obviously the Sex Pistols. Did you feel, and you were almost kind of in your late teens by then, did it feel like you were on a mission by this stage? Which year? Seventeen. No, seventy-seven. By seventy-seven, you know. So we you... were six,
1: I was six, sixteen in nineteen seventy-seven.
0: Right. So, what did that, but but you had been you've been around for a couple of years, which was quite good, and things had obviously worked. Uh, did you feel like you were on some sort of musical? Trajectory? Well, no. I
1: mean, again, because everything had happened so fast, you know, from from as I said, from point one, getting the guitars that it All just happened all suddenly, the next thing happened, suddenly the next thing happened, suddenly. and so you were always kind of pretty much in the moment, just planning that week ahead or, or whatever. They and then we would go on tour, and then it was just about you know that gig that night and what fun we could have in between, and uh, making the most of it. It was never like there was never any thought of and no planning, it's probably why it all went wrong in the end. There was no planning, it was just keep going, keep going
0: yes and when you went to record your album which was the one in you know titled the album <laughs> in 1977 yeah. did you um i mean you you know it's a sort of a combination of kind of written material and covers by people like you had Lou Reed well, it, it, was,
1: it was basically our set which was quite a lot of songs but there were 16 songs on the album right didn't need 16 songs on the fucking album and so three three of them were covers which we just did to fill the set when we were starting, you know, we should have actually chucked them out by then. So they needn't have been on the album. So it's not really a mixture of covers. We did three covers that shouldn't have done, that shouldn't have been on it. Although actually, one of them is pretty good. But the rest of the songs, you know, 13 14 songs were were our own. So it's not a mixture. Not quite.
0: Cool.
1: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, Queen Bitch. We did Queen Bitch. Crucified C- Bowie's Queen Bitch. We. Uh, Ran through Lou Reed's Waiting for the Man, and and stupidly another Lou Reed track, Sweet Jane. So why didn't the label say, don't need to have two covers by the same per- person, voice, But they were fucking idiots. Our label were complete fucking idiots. Dave Goodman, who we put all this faith in as being the Sex Pistols' great producer and all of that, just turned out to be, you know, he didn't have a clue. Basically, he didn't have a clue. A couple of good ideas in the studio, but you know, he didn't bothered with the back and you forgot to put the back and tracks on the tracks. Um I mentioned to you about these tapes that have recently surfaced and then some of the tape contained the uh guitar that should have been on there that weren't on the original thing. And so, you know, you'd think someone would have noticed. But you know, we were all saying things like, When when are we going to get to do that guitar album, up well, or that uh, bit there? But he said, later, we'll do it later, do it later. But he was such a stone hippie that I reckon he just um You know, stored it all in his head, which then just, you know, should say
0: drifted. So,
1: so we spent two weeks on that album, recording that album in Swiss Cottage, and uh, and yeah, I think as I said, I'm I'm disappointed that it wasn't released as it should have been, but hopefully that will be redressed quite soon.
0: Yeah, because the one, because the. What you've got on Spotify is the original, then, which is yeah, lovely. yeah, yeah.
1: No one's heard, no one's heard these other tracks apart from the label, right? And uh, and they, you know, it's kind of it's it's revelation, you know, because I couldn't listen to the album. I've not been able to listen to it since we did it, and uh, and now it's you know, as I said, listening to this track is like fucking hell, you know. It's uh it's 45 years too late. Oh,
0: no. <laughs> <laughs> so, where have the tapes been? They could have been
1: huge. Um, they were in Dave Gibbon's attic, right? He died um, sadly uh, about a few years back, and in the, his sister discovered this, these tapes of his in the, the most other stuff. And um, they, they were old. Big reel-to-reel tapes that have baked. You know, there's a process where they yeah. put it in an oven and stuff like that, and and then they convert to digital. And but it just took a long time because I didn't know which tape is worth what worth doing it to because it's quite costly to do it. And uh, and there's stuff that isn't so good, and there's some other stuff that you know you can't hear hardly. And then there's these, you know, pristine sounding, amazing tracks. Which, as I said, I should have made up the first,
0: or the, well, the the album. But, yeah. uh, did it feel but quite anyway. strange? Did it feel quite strange when you when you listened to it?
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. As I said, it was like you know, like a real revelation. As though, well, a fucking great band, you know, and why wasn't I more in control to have made sure that you know this sort of thing didn't happen, that tapes didn't get muddled up, or that guitar overdubs but forgot to do or I'll put my foot down and said, no we're not going to put those covers on there or don't, certainly not going to put two Lou Reed covers on there stuff like that which again being in that moment thing you don't think about so I mean you're an idiot you just kind of exist in this happy bubble and and you can't believe anyone's taking you seriously anyway so of course you just say,
0: uh, yeah 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 and why did you go for Queen Bitch by the way because I mean lyrically it's brilliant but it was not his kind of um I mean, it was a great song, but you know, it's quite.
1: I, I, I love it. I think it's a great, great track. It's one of the one of the songs I was listening used to listen to a lot of his. And uh, and there's no way we could have done five years. So. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, that would have been too tricky. Yes, well, it does it it, it, has, it does work well. So um, this is going to be brilliant, and the release is obviously in a couple of is it a month a couple of months time.
1: It's the album is coming out in summer and the singles out in May. Single single is Jeepster and No Brains. Jeepster is uh T Rex track which we did a cover of uh, which was again it was just like a back and track run through on the on the record. But this is a lot more exciting and and you know it's been remastered and it sound it sounds it sounds as though it should have been a hit to be honest with
0: you. But. Mm. The there you go. Did you? I mean, were you playing live much at this stage as well in those years?
1: Yeah, yeah, we were always getting. We were either on tour or or doing dates every other couple of days around, you know. Um, but yeah, we were we were always on the road. We started off um, in a kind of crappy little van, but and then we we once we made some money, we got a, a half decent sort of uh I don't know what it was, a big van, <laughs> full transit, whatever type thing. And um and then we used to let other bands use that sometimes our roadie would take our van and take other bands like the Susie and the Banshees and bands like that to their gigs. And so he'd moonlight with our van. And uh <laughs> and, and so as a result I had all this graffiti from different bands inside here. Like Susie and the Banshees would leave a horrible message about something or other and then <laughs> another fucking ex respect fuck off you cunts, eat her a shit, eat a suck cock and all stuff like that, which we fondly would then, graffiti up there, graffiti. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, and then, so, so what, I mean, um, just before, did John Peel sort of pick up on you at all?
1: Yeah, he, he loved it. He, he made our first single His power play or single of the week so that, that was another thing that was like on that roll of everything just happening all at once you know from the band first gig second gig you know record comes out john peel's playing the record and he's playing it every night and you know all these people are tuning in and we're getting all these tons of fan mail from you know kind of a lot of girls boarding schools actually we get we used, oh. used to get like a lot of fan mail and uh it was just mad you know totally mad and all the time my mum you know whenever I've come home after a night out at a gig or dropped off after a week away or whatever she'd kind of say what have you been, been doing what have you been doing then and and with a look that says I can't believe you're actually getting away with any of this you know <laughs> and it was a it was a very bizarre peculiar experience fun you, lots of fun though
0: I would imagine did you keep all that secret from your dad by the way
1: well he you know he couldn't do anything about it after my mum won custody of us and so i knew that and he knew that so he he was actually he got came around really quickly you know he once he saw that you know i had the guts to kind of um make it all happen he, he sort of he had to show a bit of shrugging respect he took for our first gig in manchester with the Buzzcocks. Well, that's another stupid thing so our first gig you know, there's only a clutch of people at our school that know us. That's it. And if we, if we choose for our first gig, Manchester, where definitely we've got no schoolmates, we're all underage anyway, and no one knows us. But we knew the Buzzcocks. You know, had to contact the Buzzcocks, and they were big in Manchester. So we arranged a gig where they were supporting us. You know, as as if that's a good idea. You know, unknown quantity against local heroes. You know, and they're supporting <laughs> us. And so they thought well, they don't give a fuck anyway; they know they're going to go down well, so they they kind of took all the money on the door basically but anyway my my dad he drove the band to the venue, and we had to pick up Pete Shelley from the buscocks on the way because he needed a lift with his amp, and my dad had this Ford cortina or whatever we had put this and he drove- he drove us all the way up to the venue, and then he Pete got out and goes, "Oh, thanks very much, it's a radwan and uh as he walks away my dad turns to me and he goes you know that man is a homosexual don't you <laughs> <laughs> and i go, yeah yeah so what and he goes well make sure you don't get changed in front of him
0: <laughs> this
1: is which crazy. was very strange very strange. I don't, I don't think and then my dad watched the whole gig with my brother at the back and at one point he wanted to call the police because he thought we'd started a riot you know because when after we came on we went down so terribly because they were all saying fuck off you northern wankers," are you Londoners we were going fuck off you northern wankers and Chelsea the fucking best football team they turned into this food throwing fight they're chucking all these fucking sandwiches and shit and cans of drink at us and it looked like it was going to be a riot you know because I thought the only way to deal with something like this is to just keep fucking swearing at people and being obnoxious back I was picking up sandwiches and spitting them out over the front row you you fucking wankers and uh my dad really was going to phone the police, but then fortunately, Howard DeVoto from the Buzzcocks managed to um, come and calm the situation down top, dragged us off stage. I think, you better, I think that's enough, boys. <laughs> and then uh, afterwards, I was sitting in the dressing room, really kind of pissed off and depressed. I thought, this, I thought it was going to be, you know, I, every, I thought everyone was going to be waving lighters <laughs> and fucking, you know. <laughs> and I was nearly in tears. And Howard came over to me and he put his arm around me because don't worry Andy, he it goes, it's fucking brilliant,
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, ironic brilliant, maybe, to you, bald yeah. cunt, but... <laughs> no, anyway, it was, uh, it was all part of the
0: thing. Yes, <laughs> <What>? <laughs> well, you know, when the album came out, did you, how many, did are you, you, allowed to,
1: are you allowed to swear on your radio Yeah, program? that's
0: fine, that's fine, <laughs> I that's was going to well. say, how, what were the sounds like, did you, you know, was it, did it go well? What did the sound? No, no, the sales of the record.
1: Oh, the record, the first single sold about 40,000, you know, that it, which was enough to make it number one for six years nowadays. But it didn't actually, you know, it didn't reach the charts really, or well, the lower, maybe lower regions, but you had to sell a hell of a lot of records in those days. And 30,000, 40,000 records is, is enough, you know. Ask any label at the moment, they're lucky to shift 5,000 or something. But um, we didn't, you know, although we started being put on wages, we didn't see much of the money because our manager was putting it, the Labour was putting it all into this building they'd bought in Fulham, where their headquarters were and where they were going to live. And so uh, and so, a lot of our money was going out. And um, and there was another story, they ripped us off terribly, you know, we didn't get paid a penny, the contracts we signed were ridiculous. We didn't have lawyers look at them. And and our parents didn't know what the fuck to, it was good to sign, and so uh, we did fuck that up royally. But but at least we got paid for a little while, which was which was something.
0: Yes. When you did your, you did a live album, didn't you at Barbarella's? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, was a big that, punk festival. That wasn't. That's not the club in Birmingham, is it? Yeah,
1: yeah. That's right.
0: Okay. Did you see the the Nightingales film, King Rocker, about Robert Lloyd, and they talk about Barbarella's and Duran Duran always mentions this famous club.
1: Yeah, I've heard. I've heard Duran Duran mention it, but not the other thing. But um, yeah, it was it was it was quite a good club, I suppose. But it wasn't you know? I think it was it on two floors or something. It was there was, uh, was two rooms to it or something. But it was um it was a punk festival. We played so there's a lot of other bands and those two sort of gigs those festivals are really a bit of a drag they're not so much fun um but, but yeah it was uh and also there was no good bands playing there like i think the best out of the punk bands the only band that anyone heard of was gen x generation x and um and then a load of unknown people from birmingham like Spiz. i think that was his first gig right yeah. but what,
0: uh what the prefix
1: no Maybe the prefects, I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but again, they were sort of new at the time, I think. And so, you know, I just just felt that it was not many good bands playing there. But it did, it started, Punk quickly started feeling like that, as though there was no real focus anymore, no, you know, the energy was a bit weird. It wasn't like at the very beginning at the Roxy Club, you know, or the Hope and Anchor, or any of the, the Red Cow, any of the venues that we used to play at, go to it was a very kind of, you know, visceral type atmosphere. And it was, you know, you kind of it was very up. But those punk festival type things and subsequent gigs, they were they all felt when a new club opened up in town called the Vortex. It was like the second punk club, the atmosphere changed, you know, a lot and there was like a lot of tourists coming in and um, it didn't feel like a special little club anymore. Right. Which kind of was the end of punk for me.
0: Yes. So then was 78 then quite a tricky year after the, the sort of the first. Album?
1: Yeah, it started going all new wavey, you know, the new wave in after punk, where bands started growing their hair a bit shaggier and uh, wearing smarter clothes and, you know, kind of Beatle y type things, rich kids and uh, bands like that. And it was. Um, so it was Power Pop, wasn't it? they started calling it Power Pop. And so Eater kind of, we kind of went a little bit in that direction as well. So wearing shirts with four different colours on them, and having <laughs> crimped, crimped hair, and uh, and writing more poppy songs, which, you know, uh, it, was, uh, it changed too much, you know, it was too obvious to me and to probably lots of people that it wasn't the same you know, wasn't the same thing anymore. And it was just too many bands as well. There was just so many bands playing all all the time. It wasn't like a little club anymore. And as you know, bad as it might sound, I like the elitism of, you know, a scene, if you're gonna have a scene, it's got to be elite to a certain point. Otherwise, you know, it does what punk did, and what all the other scenes tend to do, which is implode and, uh, and then, you know, you're left with the Boomtown Rats and Looking dire straits, <laughs> the police. Yeah, and the police. Yeah.
0: I mean, did you come across people like Cherry Vanilla, who who was who yeah. to touring a bit? And uh, came yeah, into- yeah,
1: uh, we met her. She came for a she played the Roxy, and our manager at the time was a guy called Lee childers who uh, was a really kind of well-known publicist. He worked for Bowie, and so and he was American. He was the manager of the Johnny Sanders as well. He was like he was like really kind of the real deal. And he took us on, you know, he really liked Dieter. And so he uh, said, I'll manage you. So we met a lot of people through him, like Lou Reed, and uh, and of course, the Heartbreakers and Cherry Vanilla when she came over. um, Because they knew each other and he probably helped get her over as well. And um, yeah, she was crazy, a crazy lady, as they say.:
0: <laughs> <laughs> Well, that was pretty impressive because Lee Black Childers has got quite a reputation, hasn't he, because he's got a real pedigree, yeah he, He's kind of like the business, and I't I know because a few years more recently, I keep coming across him basically, and I find it quite fascinating because there isn't that much out there, but there was a band a psychobilly band, psychobilly band from Essex, who he
1: not Levi and the Rockats. Yes. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. I know so, Levi, and I know all. I know that story. If you want to hear that story, but yes,
0: well, because cause I'd done an interview with Levi, plus also Smith, Smutty, Smutty Smith, and the fact that they kind of he saw them or Smithy, uh on you know in a club in Essex and went gone, and took him over to New York to meet you know Andy Warhol. He loved. I
1: mean, Lee had the real real thing for levi i mean without that he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have got involved otherwise <laughs> he had a real thing for our guitarist as well he he revealed to me in later years that he said i always had a fetish about that brian Chavet."
0: <laughs> <laughs> so yes he you know and he had this whole thing with tony DeFries the main man and then you know this this whole new york but then it was a bit like there's been a book that came out kind of literally last month about the it Velvet Mafia, these kind of, uh, I suppose, gay kind of managers who, from the 60s, like Brian Epstein, and there was a whole load of other ones that someone's just written a book about. And obviously, Levi, um, Lee Lee Childers comes from that same stable of, oh. of entertainment, doesn't he?
1: Is he in the book?
0: I don't know if he is actually. I've only got sure, a PDF.
1: He's likely. definitely worth a book, old oh, Lee. I wish he I don't I don't think he ever wrote a book, but he, I'm sure he could have produced an amazing book. Yes. Yeah. He's a great guy. He was one of the best, you know, best friends that I met out. And he stayed a friend as well through you know, through to the end really.
0: How did you and, meet like, him?
1: Well, he as I said, he when he came over with the Heartbreakers, Johnny Sanders of the Heartbreakers as their manager, he um he was on the scene of course I was on the scene as well so he saw to play one night and uh and decided he wanted to manage us and then we started hanging out with him often you know I'd stay over at his flat he had Nislington and in fact it was like a you know Doss house a load of people used to stay over there and uh and you know we'd hang out and he'd, he because he was our manager he'd pay money you know occasionally give us money if we needed money to buy stuff you know he was you know it was very um very civilized and uh he was just a really generous nice friendly friendly guy and we kind of knew that he he fancied brian and uh one night we stayed over at his flat and it was just me brian and lee and uh lee was listening to (laughs) lee was listening to this new song that we just recorded called no brains which is a single that's coming out with Jeepster, you know, and Mate. And, uh, and on the backing vocal, and he's already, he, he kind of made funny jokes about, you know, put his arm around Brian and said, hey, you can sleep on my bed if you like, Brian. <laughs> and he's listening to this song as he's lying in bed. And, uh, and there's a, it's got a chorus that goes, you ain't got no brains. And at the end, there's a camp voice that goes, you got no brains. <laughs> but it's, it's not supposed to be camp, but it sounds really camp. And he goes, Who is that doing the camp voice at the end? He goes, is it you, Brian? And Brian's going, yeah. And he goes, Could you do it for us? And Brian's going, No. And I was saying, Yeah, come on, do it for real. And I said, There's a guitar over there. And it's like, no, no, I'm not fucking doing it. <laughs> Brian was a little embarrassed by unwanted. He was a yeah, 16 year old lad by then. I think he was a little bit maybe freaked out. Although having said that, having said that, I take that back. You no, know? maybe, maybe I'm wrong. But
0: (laughs) But then with Johnny Thunders, I mean, because it's been kind of well documented, because you was the. Oh, Jerry Nolan as well. Did you sort of also pick up on. Did they come over to London together?
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Heartbreakers, all of that. Jerry Nolan, Bottler, Johnny Thunders, and Billy Rath, they all came with Lee to join the Sex Pistols on that anarchy tour. That went to pieces, obviously. And then they were stuck in England. And they had to do gigs and stuff, so you know they joined the scene for six months before their visas expired and uh, and that was how and why they were kind of on the scene and how definitely how I got to know them and lots of other people that wouldn't have probably been hanging around with ex New York dolls otherwise no.
0: and also I mean at that stage, it's well documented you know the the hard drug scene was kind of like destroying them. So well, yeah. Actually- I
1: mean, there was no, there was no real heroin scene going on in London in the punk scene before it was speed. You know, that's what we used to take, and that's what the drug of choice was. And it was when Thunders arrived, and he and he was clucking, you know, and he needs to score some smack, and it's and then contacts start coming out of the woodwork, and you know, and then other people in the scene get into it as well, and it started spreading sort of slowly. But it started, you know, because of Thunders, he was the junkie prophet. (laughs) And he kind of started the whole thing. And then it did got bad really quickly, you know. And then people like Peter Parrott, you know, from the only ones who, you know, his entourage, they were really druggy. And it just started spreading and spreading. And then it kind of, it did, you know, it did spoil things a lot. When that happened, but it, and it, that coincided with, with the tabloids all writing about Punk anyway, and and with loads of people from all over the country descending upon the Roxy, and and it all started going, you know, hair shaved really, and uh, yeah, I didn't get into the into smack until a few years. I thought I'd wait a couple of years. I thought I'd be sensible. I'm going to wait till I'm at least eighteen.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes kind of tricky one so did you did you sort of sort of then sort of come across people like Sid or Lemmy from Motor? yeah yeah were they all part of the scene
1: oh of course yeah yeah very much I mean Sid not Lemmy so much I mean Lemmy was at some of the gigs and came to the clubs a few times but Sid was always you know HQ was the Roxy club really and you know that's where we all used to go and so and it was like the default place to go if you had nothing to do you went there or you were playing there or you were meeting people there for you know music biz reasons or whatever or band reasons it was like hq and also it was a good place because you could go there and you wouldn't be kind of had the piss taken out of you for wearing mad clothes or get beaten up by soul boys which used to happen a lot or teddy boys even and uh and so yeah it was like a real it was like a, Punk Rock Gentlemen's Club, really, mm. <laughs> and then the riffraff descended, and it all went wrong.
0: <laughs> was it Muriel Belcher who used to have the um, that club in Soho, which Jeffrey Bernard and Francis Bacon used to have? Is it the Colony Club, mm. one of those kind of? Well, they write books about it, but Muriel Belcher was this famous, <clears throat> you know, publican who used to swear at all the customers and was very rude and unpleasant, but everyone loved her. He's kind of a legend so then I, think, I digress um yeah, so then as seventy eight progressed this is this when did you know the band was sort of coming to an end at this stage?
1: Well, by then, a couple of members had left, so the, the drummer degenerate degenerate who who was you know a big focus of the band he was in, he was the one that always got the back page with the teeny pinups and the, or the front page and the he was the poster boy. And uh, I mean, Eater, we got in there quite a bit, but he was always the one that, you know, the special one. Okay. <laughs> and um, and so when he left and he, he got the sack, he, and it's really unfair, it's horrible story that, you know, Ian, the bass player, and Brian, the guitarist, decided really, without my, you know, I wasn't that into the idea of, well, I wasn't into the idea at all of getting rid of him because he wasn't turning up to rehearsals and he was taking a lot of. Quaaludes and stuff like that, and and getting lazy, and and you know, and we're on a real fucking Star Trek, which was true. <laughs> so <laughs> was I. I. was So was I. So it doesn't you know? I didn't. I don't hold that against him. But anyway, I you know, I was re- I was really close to D, and and I didn't like didn't like the idea of it, but it happened anyway, and he got the sap So after he went, it definitely changed for me. You know, it, it, and we got a new drummer who was a friend of mine who I knew. You know, Finchley, and he uh, was a good drummer, much better drummer than. Well, I wouldn't say much better. He, he was more professional than D. And uh, and so the band started sounding more kind of solid as a proper rock band, you know. And the bass player was always really good. It was only the only letdown was really the guitarist who had the sound of uh, strumming a three bar three, three bar fire, you know that. <laughs> Ding, ding, ding. It, whatever he, whatever amp he used, didn't matter if it was a fucking hundred watt stack, it would sound like George Formby's foot ban, banjo play. <laughs> and uh but generally that wasn't his fault because we would be given these stupid poxy little 25 watt practice amps, you know, on for a live, you know, and uh and so, but he didn't have the, you know, we were only kids, he didn't have the kind of noose to uh you know, to start sorting his his own amp out. And uh, <laughs> maybe you should have, but anyway. So what I'm saying, trying to say, is I'm not totally blaming him <laughs> for that. But so we were sounding overall quite professional by then, and uh, you know, I was my singing was getting better. I wasn't kind of barking out the lyrics so much, and the songwriting was, was you know was really. Me and Ian, the bass player used to write the songs, and most but well, a lot of the songs were just mine I used to write some of them. What was that other thing he said There was a selection of songs and in there as well <laughs> and uh and that was going well, you know we wrote some great singles, some really great singles on a couple of really good album tracks. But then the guitarist then Brian decided he was going to leave as well because after you know another six months or whatever, because I, he'd got bored of touring all the time and um and that was a real letdown because he was my wingman from the very start, you know, on the robbery and that. And so that was a bummer. So we had to get a new guitarist and we got this guy that could really play now, you know, and it had a proper martial and he knew how to set it up and how to adjust the volume controls and everything <laughs> and tune it. And uh and he was he was a great guitarist, but you know, the kind of the spirit of it had gone by then and the songs were sounding more professional and but the songwriting was getting more, Ian's kind of riffs, he was coming up, was getting more and more, I thought, R&B, kind of heavy splash, heavy metal. And whenever we used to rehearse, they'd start to the warm up on Rolling Stones songs or some fucking heavy Zeppelin riff type things. And and I'd be twiddling my thumbs, you know. And, and then I stopped going to rehearsals after a while. And then, you know, it turned into a real saga with... Ian, if the car's outside, waiting to pick me up to go rehearsal, and like Ian's banging on the door, saying, "Get, come on, get your fucking gear together, get down, we're late already, you cunt," and I um and I'm poking my head out, I'm really ill, I can't go to rehearsals today, you know. And this was like a year before then, I was willing to walk all the way from Finchley to Acton to go and rehearse, you know, and walk all the way back again. Now I couldn't be asked to just get in the car and it, you know. And so we all kind of mutually decided to uh, to quit. And I found out then that, you know, they're both, you know, two of them already had secretive plans to leave to go on the bands anyway. And so and then from that point, I was then unemployed at 17. I was like on the scrap heap. And uh and so I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to stop being in this great wonderful thing called music business. And so I started um, you know, just writing a load of songs and getting better at it then started bands from there, solo bands, and yeah. uh, I've never stopped, really, to be honest with you.
0: So, <clears throat> was the last single you did, or recorded, was that the the um, What She Wants is... Yes. The, is watching, yes. So yeah,
1: the yeah. last <laughs> single was 1978, um, I think about November, I think about November, 78, and um, and that was, uh, I mean, that was, that, that was a good single. I liked the A side hard I wasn't too convinced with, but um but that I don't think that sold I think that probably sold least well out of all of our singles and uh and then you know the final I remember the final gig we did, and it was at this pub somewhere in the outskirts of London, and there was this queue of by then they were kind of the uniform punks they all had uniforms yeah of uh, you know the leather jacket and the mohique and and the you know the studs and tattoos and stuff like that, which had never been in the original scene. No, it was nothing like that. It was more do whatever you want individually kind of thing rather than this is your, you know, this is your uniform. And uh, and I found that depressing. I remember sitting, even though it was like a long queue, I thought normally I would have thought fucking hell, great. You know, it's gonna be packed. I thought I don't like the look of him. Don't like the look of him. <laughs> and then and it was with a couple of other bands that I that were new, newish to me, punk you, you know, punk bands like UK Subs and uh, some other band who were just the antithesis of it. You know, anything I thought glamorous and, and good, you know, I came from glam, not from fucking, you know, bin liners and uh, you know, donkey jackets, and uh, and so they, you know, that was that was a terrible gig. I remember being gobbled in the mouth, they were when we were playing, someone. there's this habit of like gobbing on bands as well which is a real stupid stupid thing but they all thought we have to do it because we're punks and I remember this one green grolly just like slow motion man spang on my tongue you know and I didn't have a chance to even spit it out and uh and that was pleasant and I thought I don't know if I want to be in a punk band anymore (laughs) and then I started growing my hair all long and became a hippie for a while
0: nice well it was the 80s wasn't it we all sort of so so how did you then i mean obviously it's kind of a strange one with you know once you've had that intensity of being in the band and and you had been doing that for nearly five years so how did you then sort of navigate the 80s because because obviously well it was
1: you know it it was tough to do because it was i wanted to stay you know i was still determined to stay in music and to um i knew i had more to do and and so you know, it's just Peter Stark because I've picked up a lot of connections by then, you know, Billy Duffy, who we talked about earlier, who was in the nosebleeds with Morrissey, he came to London to form a band. And uh and we we he joined that band and it didn't work out. And by then we'd met and he's he wanted to join he heard some songs of mine and uh and he wanted to collaborate and, and form a band. So we did. And uh and we had a little outfit together for a for a, a while, and um, and all the time, I was just writing songs, getting better, knowing more about what I want actually want to do, you know, in the studio and what, you know, avoiding any fashion or genre, you know. After punk rock, it was like it was. I just, but I felt like, you know, Andy Blade, he's that, ex, you know, old has been from Eater, you know, even though I was only not even eighteen, you know, and uh, so. Yeah, like that. It struggled on for a while. Had some success with little labels. Had uh, nearly runs with major labels. You know, found indie labels to continue releasing stuff anyway. Uh, kept playing, and then, and then I got married, and then I had a couple of kids, and I decided I would be sensible for a while, and I tried to become a teacher. Well, I did become a teacher, but I tried that for a few years. Not a few years, like two years, and um, it didn't. You know, it didn't. It wasn't for me. Inst- I mean, I always hated fucking school anyway. So I really don't. I don't know why I even thought it might be a good idea to even think about it. But uh, and I, but I thought I'd give it a chance anyway. But I was right. You know, I shouldn't have even thought about it. And so I went back to um, to music again, and I wrote a book in two thousand and five which you know did quite well and started and then discovered I really like writing and so I've been writing a lot ever since then and um and yeah which more or less brings us up to now I've probably skipped over a hell of a lot though
0: yes <laughs> oh yeah and
1: also that's right this there's a I'm I met a guy from California who wanted, who was in the movie business who suggested writing a screenplay you know and I don't know how to write a screenplay because I've never written one before so he said well I'll teach you how to write it and uh and you write it so he did and I did and it's and it's you know it, it's fucking brilliant it's amazing and uh and I sent the first pe- people we sent it to was Ridley Scott's production company who are big and uh RSA they're called and they immediately they said yeah you know this jumps out at you and and it was fortunately enough again weird coincidence the uh Ridley Scott's son is running the business now because Ridley Scott's pretty old Jake and uh he's a friend of Billy Duffy's and so um and he comes from that you know not from the same area at all but he comes from the same era and a lot of the music and everything, and he really related to the book that I'd written as well and everything. And so he's got really behind it. And they had some really big, big plan. Well, they do have big plans for it, but we've had a bit of a upset in that they'd taken it to the BBC and they had some meetings about it. It's going really well and it looked like, you know, they're going to give us millions of pounds to make this. It would be like a Netflix series based on the book. Of lots of escapades basically. It's a bit like a punk rock in between as I think you safely say. Right. And uh and then it for some reason, uh we told a couple of reasons why that might be, it's uh they decided it wasn't for them. And uh and so we're still, you know, we're still looking for the script is brilliant. And um there's a lot of actory people interested, but we do need to get obviously someone with a few million pounds that can <laughs> that can do the business on like, it. But it's you know, I think it's gonna happen. This lockdown hasn't helped because that's that that's really slowed, you know, everything down. And uh so there's that on the go. Uh but yeah.
0: I mean just <clears throat> just just slightly into the into the 80s, because I suppose the indie scene was kind of my moment of when things started getting excited with I suppose eighty-three was when the Smiths happened, and then there was that five-year period of indie pop, which was exciting. And as you would probably realise, that most things then get tired, or for various reasons, you get old and you get a bit bored of it. So, how did you? I mean, at that age, you were still sort of—you know—were you were you sort of thinking, "God, this is—I could still be," you know, making a bit of a m- moment during that period? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, and it did—it came close a couple of times, but I seem to have you know uh something always seems to happen you know before a big payoff which seems to be the uh story of my life there's a there's a chapter in my book that's called the talisman and it's all about this um and it kind of explains this why it's happened maybe and it's i stayed over at my brother's pad in finsbury park when he was a student one night and he'd gone off to college and on my way out I got dressed you know I had some breakfast on my way out I saw this little package envelope on the side it was a communal mail like thing and I thought that's a very interesting package well, I couldn't help myself but swipe it had a habit of doing that those days and uh and so on the train I opened it up and it was like really well wrapped you know little package and quite heavy I opened it and it was um it turned out to be a, a talisman like a pendant you wear around your neck but it it was in a little satin square satin embroidered pillow thing and I unpicked the pillow and inside it there was a letter set with ing- of ingredients and it said hair uh drop of blood eyelash fingernail stuff like that and so I looked in there and there was like a tiny bit of nail and someone said and somebody someone had sent it to some fucking magician or or something <laughs> maybe a company that if somewhere in Cornwall I remember from a really. and this is a personal talisman to bring them good luck Right, I discovered, you know, I, I found out, I read, I went to the library and spent a couple of hours in there. And what I found out was that, and I'd all, by this time, I'd already replaced all of the things with my fingernail, my locker hair, my blood, and sewed it up again. And then I started reading about these things, and I've discovered that if you ever steal or find someone else's talisman, it will bring the reverse of good luck to you. And so, uh, said so the only way to dispel... You know, to get rid to get rid of the the kind of curse is if you throw it in a flowing river, and that will make it vanish. Yeah, you know? and so I thought, "Fuck it, I've got to throw in a flowing river." So I put it in my little bag that I used to take on gigs. the Next time we were off up north, and I told the driver to, you know, to, when we stop for lunch somewhere, we'll pull over at a beauty spot somewhere. Then. But there has got to be a little flowing river. <laughs> so we found this place. This is true, right? Absolutely <laughs> true. We found this little glade you know, and it had a little stream, it's hardly a flowing river, just a stream, but I thought that'll fucking do. So I went back to the van, I rooted around in my bag to find the talisman, which I know for a fact I put in the bag that morning and I couldn't fucking find it, I couldn't find it. And so, hence, nearly things happening, but then something always going bad at the end, of the rest of my life. I'm stuck with that, I'm afraid.
0: God, oh, that's an amazing story, isn't it? I don't know
1: what to do about it,
0: to be honest. <laughs> But then you kind of earlier said that you managed to sort of even get a, a a drug habit after your your eater period as well so how did you manage to sort of get in and out of that that world
1: that was that that stalled you know stalled things well actually it didn't stall them it, it just messed things up for a bit for me um because i never thought i would get addicted you know to any drugs and um and i always knew that heroin was supposed to be the drug that would get you addicted but i started meeting some people i mean after the thunders thing i knew all about what smack was like anyway but there was a drummer who was also used to be eaters roadie he turned into a drummer that was in a band that went on tour with peter perrett once and he got into smack because of that and he then said you should try some of this and and so i said all right then. <laughs> and i smoked it and i found it to be brilliant i thought wow this is best drug in the world you know there's no there's no reason to get any other drugs or anything <laughs> but you can do whatever you like on this drug everything is great and so I thought but you know obviously I'm not going to get into it uh, but then obviously inevitably I had started then you know buying bits and pieces here and there and, and uh and then you know sometimes I would get a bit ill and I wouldn't know what it was you know and my mate would go uh oh, you've got Chinese flu haven't you and I go, well, Chinese, what are you talking about? He goes, you've you got with jaws. I have go, not got with jaws, I've just got a bit of a runny nose. I said, well, but it kind of then just snowballed and crept up and, and then I did really realise that I did indeed have Chinese flu whenever I didn't take care of it. And Chinese flu is worse than COVID. And so uh, I decided to um, stay on it for a while because I couldn't face the prospect of getting COVID. And I, uh, uh, st- you yeah, know, I was still playing with bands still making music and still doing stuff but it was all pet de- suddenly everything became dependent on if you can get hold of something and the London smack scene at that time although sometimes it was like loads around there's often days was just complete droughts and nothing around at all and because I didn't have you know I wasn't sophisticated enough a junkie to have a methadone habit uh, at prescription or anything like that and so it was sort of like ill or well, ill or well to be sometimes it'd be well, 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 ill, 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 well, <laughs> ill, 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 Ill <laughs> like that. And um but eventually, eventually I I thought I had to do something about it. So I actually that's a lie. I didn't think that my dad discovered a syringe in uh because by then I started shooting up as well. He discovered a syringe I'd left behind a cupboard or something in, in my the room that I was crashing at, at his place. And so he had this big talk with me and, and he was right, you know, about the music business and everything. <laughs> <laughs> and he said the only thing to do is send you off to to Egypt. But he's from Egypt, my dad comes from Egypt. So uh he this he's got an uncle over there. In fact he's got family over there, but he wanted me to go and stay with his strict uncle who who <laughs> It was like a jailer, it'd be like a jailer, but I thought I'll do anything, just you know, this sounds a bit like an adventure, you know, I'll go to Israel first, and then I'll get cut to the bus to the Egypt border, and, and it will all be a bit of a laugh. But then suddenly, so he gave me some money to do it, but he didn't give me cash, he gave me a cheque that I had to give to the uncle who was going to bank it. So he's clever enough to know not to give me any cash that I would then go to America instead. And, uh, and so I went to Israel, and then it started going on from there because I got. Um, detained because I, because i've got an arab surname radwan it's and it's kind of one of the names that they think is suspicious and and uh maybe palestinian coming to do an attack and so they detained me for a couple of days which was real pain and i was really ill you know I, I, by this point i was really really clucking as they say and uh and that wasn't fun at all and then eventually they they let me go and uh and i got this bus to i had no money somehow i ended up with no money I don't to have to cheque and somehow I, t- I talked the co- coach driver into driving me to Egypt anyway and let me ride for free and uh, and so he did and I turned up at the uncle's house he cashed the cheque and then I was kind of bound by that for uh, for a little while but it, actually it was fun because I met a lot of cousins and people like that that I didn't know and they were taking me out to places and and, uh, and you know, no drink or anything like that. There's no such thing as bars to go to or anything Yes, uh, but I was drinking lots of coffee and smoking lots of fags, and uh, and you know eating some nice food. It was it was quite it was a good way to do it. In the end, and uh, and then I went back through Israel to get back, and this time I I bumped into the and trouble again on the Egyptian border when I got through to Israel, and and they saw I'd been already. Pulled up and checked, and so they went through that whole rigmarole again. By the time I missed my plane, and uh, I kept telling them, I'm gonna miss my plane, I'll miss my plane. I said, No, no, we'll get you there, but they didn't, and I missed my plane. Then they chucked me out in the middle of the desert. When they finished detaining me for whatever reason, going through my bag forensically, I then had to get from there to the airport with no ticket by now. But I turned up at the airport anyway because I thought there's nothing else to do apart from go to the airport, and uh. And they, you know, security people were immediately on me and they basically wouldn't let me in. So I I, I had, I don't know, maybe five quid or something like that. And I could, just got a bus. How long have we got? Cause this is <laughs> story. I got a bus into the West Bank because I thought I'll go there because I was given an address by my brother who knew a Palestinian, which was, you know, another stra- a strange little stay. So I stayed there for a few days, but I had to pretend I was Muslim you know because they knew I came from a Muslim family you know, background in my name and my father and my brother who is Muslim but I didn't know how to pray and, and I had to pretend to they'd say right we're going to say prayers now we're going to the mosque for six o'clock prayer and I go oh great oh great and they're going you know how to pray and it's like yeah of course I do you know, <laughs> muslim oh right? no Muslim inglesi as they kept calling me and so I just kept copying them I just kept watching whatever they were doing. They <laughs> bend it down bend it down the washing part this is horrible complicated washing part where you have to like wash your arms up to the elbows first before you pray other arm up to the elbows bit of ankle back it's all like a weird convoluted palaver which i didn't know how to do either and uh it was that but they either knew i was conning them and didn't say anything because they were being too polite or that or i got away with that i'm not sure but eventually i got back to the airport I I just had a real go at the security man, said, look, you fucking well lost me my ticket. You know, so, and they spoke to the other people at the border thing. They eventually issued me a ticket and actually literally walked me onto the plane. And I was (laughs) never so happy as when it fucking took off and started going towards Luton. And and I thought, well, I'm never going back to that fucking country again. (laughs) But I was well.
0: But I was you, well. You were well, you were good. Did you go to Sharm the Sheik and, and those sort of places? And St. I, I didn't go to any of
1: the tourist places. Oh, in Egypt, you mean? No, no, no. I was in Cairo. I was, right. um, you know, I, none of, not, not a touristy area. In fact, I was in a really, really kind of conservative area. And I kept going into the local shop to use the phone because I had to speak to the people in Israel at the embassy. And I kept saying Tel Aviv, Tel Aviv, like that on the phone. And the shopkeeper telling me, he was going a fury and someone had to translate. He said, Stop saying Tel Aviv in this shop because people are going to come and attack you. think <laughs> <laughs> you're an Israeli spy. But I'm <laughs> definitely not one of them. I've just been arrested
0: by them. <laughs> God, that can make a play. So, look, then, okay, so that was good. Then, just briefly, then, in the 90s, the Brit pop period, you, you bring out a solo album, don't you?
1: Yeah, yeah. That which got some good reviews and Melody, Melody Baker was like the Bible at the time and the enemy. And uh, yeah, I had a, a, a band that was, um, you know, we made an, an EP and an album and they started, uh, you know, getting a lot of, well, a bit of press. We got single of the week in Melody Maker, no less. And so that that was very brick pop era. And I was quite into all the bands like Suede. I was really, really, really into Suede. And um, elastica and so you know by then i wasn't writing like punk rock songs anymore their attitude maybe but you know like a bit more sophisticated and uh good bands some great songs as well actually but you know again never sold a million that they're supposed to on a parallel universe somewhere there's a very wealthy anti-blade who's had years and years of success because
0: yes, there was quite a lot of money floating around because i remember there was a poet wasn't there a million pound poet murray lachman young who was kind of it, he was kind of supporting bands like my life story and there was obviously pulp you know, oh. as well as kind of the songwriter had come back you know i mean my life was,
1: story were great I, I liked them there were girl yeah. girl a was it boy b girl yeah. c there was great that's great stuff but yeah, yeah there was a lot of managed managers have always been the ones you know that that, that start Flashing the money, you know, because it's like that with the punk thing, you know, with Bernie Rhodes and with Malcolm McLaren or whatever, they're the ones that control. And then in those, in those years, as you say, the entrepreneur managers who, you know, start supporting their favorite band, there was a band called, um, I mean, Peter Perrett's band, he formed a band during that period called The One, and uh, their manager was basically, you know, a bit of a fan and a Rich businessman, which always helps. Rich businessman fans are the, the gold dust.
0: Yes, this is true. So, did then from that solo album? Did did that sort of putter out again?
1: So, well, it never puttered out. It, it, it never, you know, it never stopped moving very slowly. <laughs> it didn't putter out. I, just, you know, I, I then after the um, that period of time after the last single. Which was in 1997, 98. Um, I then had a kind of that had a teaching phase, then you know for a bit where I didn't didn't do release any stuff. I was doing gigs still, you know. And then in about in 96 as well, I, I was I got in touch. A promoter got in touch who was doing a big punk rock reunion thing at Blackpool called Holidays in the Sun. So the Buzzcocks were playing and Slaughter and the dogs were playing and X-ray Specs and Jane County and you know, a whole lot of people. And Eater. we so we decided to do it because we were offered really, you know, what I thought was quite a lot of money for, for a couple of rehearsals. And so reformed the band, but not with the whole band, it was guitarist Brian and uh, a different bass, my my own bass player and drummer from my band. And and that was horrible. That was a terrible experience. We got ripped off for a start. We only got paid half our fee, and and it was like Barbarella's festival. You know, it was like just a punk band after punk band. I mean, I like a lot of punk music, but I like a lot of glam as well. I like a lot of other stuff, and I don't like to just watch one fucking two day period of all the same thing in a row. Those things are, and. uh, and it becomes a bit tired and boring. Plus they all had the Mohicans and the studded leather jackets and the uniform and the trillion whole Dr Martins and, and all that kind of thing. So it was uh, done you know out of curiosity really would this be any good and the sex pistols had just reformed by then so it seemed like well if they said it's okay to reform then yeah we can. But it was actually you know the conclusion was bad idea on my, on my side and uh and that started off its own thing. So now a lot of those bands, those old punk bands, uh, you know, with various lineups have been going ever since. And um, and I find all of that whole thing very, very unpleasant, which is probably why I made that comment to you at the beginning about I'm glad your station not just a punk rock station.
0: No, no, it's, um, to be honest, more indie pop, really. But yeah, so does that mean, you know, because I had no idea what, I mean, various members of the original band went on to other, Combos. What happened to your original drummer? um Degenerate. No, oh. your brother. Social demise. Oh, my
1: dr- brother. Well, actually, he he did okay in the end. He um, is, you know, he stopped stealing things. <laughs> his nickname was Snatcher when he was a kid because he was always say nick that apple, nick that. Pepper. But he stopped all that and he went to to uh, he got his degree in geography and he's he's a farmer now. He's become a farmer. So social demise ended up doing quite well. He lives in Oxford and uh, Oxfordshire. And uh yeah, so he's he's done all right. I always knew he would be okay. Yeah. yeah. And what about
0: so. and what about Degenerate?
1: Degenerate is he's got into social work after um the band, you know, uh, he start he started another band after he got kicked out of ETA. And uh, but nothing really much happened with it. And then he got, eventually, it, I think he had a bit of a smack habit as well for a while. His sister died a heroin overdose. She was, Caroline was only, you know, younger than him. And uh, and he, he straightened up and he started, I think, social work. He got the social work. Then he worked for a council as a kind of executive kind of figure and fundraiser. And he looks, to me, he looks like a senator. He looks like one you know got silver hair he's got handsome distinguished face and you know smart clothes he looks like a silver senator and uh so yeah he's and he's got a kid two kids i think three kids maybe two i think and uh a lovely wife called lucy he's doing all right in northampton and uh then there's ian is now he the bass player did the best out of all of these he um After he left, he played with the Vibrators and a couple of other bands for a while, and then he started working for a clothing manufacturer, uh, you know, Nike, I think it was, and or Puma, one of those. And there was he was made redundant instead of being given money, he was given a ton of shares or something like that, and they were all he thought worthless shares, you know, a lot of them, but worthless. And for some reason, the company must have been taken over or whatever, and the shares all shot up, and he, he made about five or six million out of it, and decided to retire uh, after work, you know, this, going back about 15 years, I suppose. And he now lives in Portugal, got a lovely farm, big house sort of thing. And uh, not a farm, but a big house <laughs> pool. And he's got a bit bolder. but he's, he's, he was a great bass player, but he doesn't play bass anymore. He, he refuses to play bass for some reason. And then the other one, Brian, I don't know if I should tell this story, really. So it touches on being a bit personal. But he, he ended up married to my ex-wife. And that was a very unpleasant thing. Quite a few years ago that happened. And so he broke up our little, my little family and uh, and his. And But we, you know, we sort of, we're still friends. Well, after a long time, I still I'm kind of, terms of it but it's a horrible thing betrayal. Even you know, even if a marriage should end or even if something should end to be stabbed in the back is you know, is distinctly unpleasant. And because I've known him, he's like a brother really, you know, it's a very difficult, awkward situation that he put me in. But we still, you know, we still get on. Yeah. And I've played with him since. I must have known I played with him since since that happened and uh, you know it he's a, he's a, can be quite a laugh that's
0: right. yeah so with the with the kind of the the reissue or this, this the album with the proper mix um does that mean that the the band have been in communication to just say guess what's happened we're going to put this out and and like fuck me that's amazing
1: well actually i I've, I've not really mentioned it to me i asked i told i asked brian i told brian about it i asked him if he could remember any of the sessions that we did with the overdubs but um so no I haven't made any proper I, to be honest with you I think Ian kind of thinks you know he's very much always thought Ease was my thing and he doesn't really you know it's not like we all talk about the past all the time or anything like no. that he's got his own business to get on with in Portugal and <coughs> Degenerate only played on really just the first few singles you know so he didn't play on the album and so you know his interest is again, um well, I'm sure he'd like to hear it, but it's it's not like, you know, it's, I don't feel so I should, or well, I can't, I feel like phoning up and saying, hey, well, you know, but guess what? Because I think it would be, I think I probably am more intrigued and interested in it than anyone else would be. Because it sounds more like the thing that I hoped would, you know, the album would sound like. Yeah. I, I, I'm not sure. It's very weird. There's different takes on it. And I was like, with Brian he you know he told me recently that you know basically when I I said come and do, I wanted to do I was booked to do a gig in Japan with degenerate so you could do it and so I asked Brian I didn't have to do that but I thought well this is a good way to kind of patch things up after all these years and maybe you know and become brothers again and so it sort of worked but then he said to me at the time that You know, he'd never listened to the eat stuff until just very recently. And, you know, or he'd always been really embarrassed about being an eater, as though, you know, maybe he was, you know, I assume to be kind of, you're bluffing it, you're trying to get away with it. And you're waiting for someone to say, stop, you know, stop doing that. It's crap. It's useless because really we know it's crap, but we're trying to pretend to other people that it's good. And I kind of understand. What he means a bit about that, but for me, it's more like I'm pissed off that the I wasn't more in control when we recorded stuff, you know, when we recorded the album because a lot of the things that you know well, happened were were avoidable, and so I've got a different take. it. Ian, kind of, I think he just quite enjoyed the experience. He wasn't as invested in it, you know, as 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 me, for instance, starting it from scratch and. All, the guitar theft, and he wasn't involved in any of that. So he just sort of joined a, a couple of kids that didn't know how to play, and was kind of kind enough to sort of play bass with us in the, in the hope that we might improve quickly. But I mean, he was old at the time; he was seventeen. like we were yeah. fifteen and thirteen. So he was like the old man of the band. But Without him, it, again, it would have been bad. I mean, he was. A, everybody involved that's the great thing about a good any good band is that everybody involved plays a really important part you know there's either from this aesthetic front or actually playing you know playing well or being a good solid bass player or drummer or whatever you know and uh you know and unfortunately i could write as well i mean i i was a bit embarrassed about my early songs because i wrote them most of them at school and stuff but actually the words pretty good there's you know they must have thought hey he can actually write but i never ever, ever thought that at the time i just kept thinking i hope they can't really hear these lyrics or something.
0: <laughs> yes yeah yeah well i guess i mean one thing that i've noticed doing this show is that quite a lot of people you know have done their thing then life gets you know other things happen and that goes and then not everybody but quite a few then sort of go actually go back 20, 35 years and just quite like to archive what they've done after not really giving it much thought and thinking actually I'd quite like to just get this in a nice little package and obviously Cherry Red Records would be very good at that and there's there's a lot of other little labels like Fire Station Records in Germany and now there's a new one in
1: Cooking Vinyl. vinyl. Cooking vinyl. Cooking Vinyl do a lot of that.
0: Right, right. and there's another, there's a new one that's happened happening in Preston called Optic Nerve Records, who've been starting to find these kind of flexi discs and EPs that bands put together but never put an album out. And they've (laughs) put together a nice little package with you know sleeve notes and you know, a set of I don't know, a thousand copies. But everyone really likes it because it's like bloody hell, we never even had a record when we were out there, and and now it's been probably remixed. It actually sounds quite nice, it's it's
1: great, really. But they, you know, it's um. don't pay much these people they and it's a good it's a good earner for for them because they're picking up i mean people like i won't name any names but if you pick up a bunch of publishing contracts worth nothing you know when they come up for renewal then uh if you've got enough of them you know it starts actually ticking over generating money all the time and um they can do okay out of it but on the band side you know definitely from my side it's just nice to have stuff out there um and available because you know that was the whole point of us doing it in the first place was not to get rich was to
0: you know have people here hear stuff and like it um but obviously uh it's um
1: you know it's the, there's a lot of niches aren't there different things that people like you know cherry rediscott I've got a catalogue of all kinds of weird shit on there, which is great I think yes. um, one thing but also some dreadful stuff as well some really atrocious horrible stuff (laughs) like you wonder you know who's into that
0: who is into that i know they're amazing for that that business but they just hoover up like some sort of i don't know hungry hungry henry isn't it um so look last question i mean if you could have said something i was going to normally say if you could have said something to an 18 year old self starting out but you're actually a bit younger if you could say to a very young self, you know, beginning your kind of journey, um, what what would have what would the key little things? If you could have said, look, you know, because most people say, well, that was all like, okay, it's turned out okay, but but sometimes you think, I just wish I'd been a bit more aware of that that and that. Or, I
1: would write a dissertation for them to read <laughs> before they do anything. <laughs> Sit down, read this before you do anything, and there'd be a list of people, situations, and. Things to avoid you know be patient be patient, I think exactly is, is the thing that I would say that, you know don't be in such a hurry and don't keep thinking that you know you're conning people into liking you because uh, you know people like it, they'll say so you don't have to think, oh you've got away with it because you've muffled the lyrics, you know which is first <laughs> my approach yeah. A bit of confidence, yeah, I was really lacking in confidence as a kid as well, I mean, that's why I could never believe that anything good was happening, you know, it was like, it, it was always just amazing, you know, everything was, any good reaction, even the to find out you have being ripped off by somebody, you know, it was amazing, because they were that interested that they would actually want to rip you off, <laughs> <laughs> they thought there's some value, stupid things.
0: Yes. So does that mean, apart from you know, where well, you have got quite a lot of projects, but is there any new material in the pipeline?
1: Yeah, I've got um, I've got a, an EP, a new EP coming out, um, June. It was supposed to be out very soon, but it's probably June, and then there's four new tracks on that, which I personally love. I mean, everything anybody will tell you this that like, every, every every kind of new song that you write. That's definitely your favorite thing. So the only thing is that most people listen to my old stuff. And so, and so it's difficult. I don't find many, you know, it's sometimes that again, with this punk rock thing, it's like, if you, there seems to be this opinion that if you played in a punk rock band, then everything you ever got to do is like, one, two, three, four and it's, it's the bit unrealistic and unfair to do that but and because i think that i think the hardcore punk rockers think my stuff is a bit poncy and a bit kind of too poetic maybe and uh and so but i don't give a fuck because i it's only what i only ever wrote anything that i wanted to hear myself you know if they didn't know what they were going to get with either, they i mean they never would have suggested it they had to wait for it you know what i mean so yeah. i feel like about everything i do is I don't trust other people. I would never put I want your opinion on something, you know, in fate on Facebook or whatever, because you know, that's another thing I've learned. You can't actually trust anybody. You've got to solely rely on your, you know, intuition and uh you know what I mean?
0: Yes. Just and just last question, because I've always curious. When was the last time you saw Lee Childers?
1: The last time I saw him was at a little reunion thing that he got together in, the, in his back garden. He was, he was back in London for for a, a, a bit of an extended stay and he rented this place in Wimbledon, I think. And, uh, and he had a little get together in his garden in the summer, of going back quite a few years now. I'm not even sure when he died. That was quite a few years ago. But it was in the 2000s. And um, it was really good, it was good to see him, you know, oh no, actually it's a lie, the most recent time I saw him, he came to a gig I did at the 100 Club in 2006 and uh, he took some photos and gave me a bunch of pictures that he took of me, you know, back in the day, including a shot of me and Lou Reed, that you know, my treasure, he got me on the guest list of Lou Reed's gig at the, the Hammersmith, whatever it was, and uh, that was another great thing, but yeah he he was just really sweet he's always been just a really sweet genuine guy and he was with Gail his long time friend and uh and he was flying back to the states and then i got an email a really sweet email from him about a month after this and uh and he'd taken my book with me with him i'd signed it for him you know i'd inscribed some funny message on it and given it to him and he took it on the plane and he read it on his way to wherever he was going and um and he sent me this email saying that a really sweet email saying he fell in love with my book as you do as you do when you're, you know what, what was it what he said. it's some It was brilliant like I fell, I fell in love with your book as you do with a stranger you meet in a far-flung place or something and i you know and he's a brilliant little review he gave me of it all and, uh, and he said it all took him back to the times and he said it reminded him of the
0: of it, the crash he had on Brian. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so sweet. So, I've
1: still got that email. It's very, really, it was, you know, I couldn't get rid of that. Cause it's too sweet. And, yes. um, and yeah, it's sad he's no longer here.
0: A legend, And yeah, He's he? also
1: quite lucky, really, because it's a bit shit at the moment.
0: So. <laughs> God, yes. Little, did he know what was going to come next? Blimey. yes well look this has been fantastic well thank you ever so much for this and um if you want well, i can always send you a link you know to the to the interview yeah do please and um, then you can always post it up and and oh well, and... definitely yeah yeah that'd be no problem because yes um, do you want
1: me to send you this single
0: yes i would you love... play music pardon
1: you play music or is it... yeah yeah
0: i sort of you i do a few shows on the station so i can always put it on one of the other shows I okay, so i'll that'd do be that great but look, thank you. This has been amazing. Oh, thanks a lot. Yes.
1: Good meeting. Nice talking. And, yes.
0: Uh, okay. Is your book still available by the way?
1: It is, yeah. Um I'll I'll email you about it. You
0: know? Yeah, I, I think I kind of saw it. Was it on Cherry Red, by the way? No.
1: The first original book was Cherry Red Books. And then this one is um it's an independent publisher. Up up north. It, it's uh Hardback. Nice big
0: proper
1: book I never
0: had a hardback before Ooh. so yeah I'll see if I can get you one. I'll you know I'll email you about that brilliant okay well look thanks a lot I'll let you I'll let you go and there you go that is how you end a conversation and interview anyway look I love leaving that in because it's so kind of awkward anyway big thank you to Andy Um, forgive me the interview for the time of that interview from Eater if you um, yes I think if you sort of Google Eater and Andy Blade you'll be able to find some more information here there and everywhere Um, anyway if you want to contact me which might be nice well make it positive please you can on Facebook Twitter Instagram just do C86 show Um, this has been David Easter all these I've done hundreds of these interviews you can find those on Spotify iTunes Podbean check them out they do go on but Fascinating, fascinating stuff. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.